I think you can see from our studies so far that the subject of angels is a pretty vast subject. It's woven all throughout Christianity, and there are verses in the Bible just, you know, if you all of a sudden you read along and say, oh, it just mentioned an angel there. Our songs mention angels. Angels is a big part of God's kingdom and, and, and a big part of Christianity, and we could probably put together 30 or 40 sermons on different aspects of angels. But I wanted to give this one this afternoon to close up the thoughts because it, I think, in, in my mind, this study helps me, helps, helps me put myself where I think I belong and helps me, in my mind, place God where it, it seems like that he belongs in this study, and that is the study of the seraphim. Seraphim, like cherubim, are specific angels mentioned in the scriptures. They're found in those verses right there. The word seraph is the Hebrew word for burning. The first time the word was used in the scriptures, it was used to describe the serpents that God sent on the children of Israel when they sinned. These serpents were sent and they would bite the children of Israel and that bite was a very burning bite. Apparently the, the poison, the venom that was in this serpent was such that when, when it bit the people that it had a real burn to it. And if you remember, the, uh, Moses had to make a brazen serpent on a stick and raise it up. The people had to go look at that and they would be healed. Jesus later likened that being lifted up to what would happen to him when he would be lifted up on a cross before the people. And, and when you look upon the cross and look to the cross, you find salvation. But that was the first time this word seraph was used, burning. And it was used in reference to burning serpents. The word seraphim is just plural. It means many of them. The word later was used by the prophets to describe um, there was a false pagan religion that was existed in Canaan, mostly among the Philistines, where they worshipped a certain god, and this god was represented to them by a constellation in the sky, a fiery flying serpent it was called. And this god they worshipped was uh, one of the pagan gods that was important to them. And as the prophets talked about that, and there, and especially Isaiah, he referred to this fiery flying serpent in the sky that these pagans worshipped. And metaphorically, it was applied to Nebuchadnezzar as being that fiery flying serpent because it devours. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to devour the land because of the wickedness of Israel. It was used to describe Nebuchadnezzar in Isaiah 14 when it was describing his wickedness. Isaiah, when he began his ministry, used the word seraphim to describe some angels that he saw. And he used that word because these angels were so bright in their appearance, so brilliant in what he saw, that he described them as burning angels. Now, those are the angels I want to talk about. These angels that Isaiah saw in this vision of the throne of God that were special angels, these four angels, no others quite like them, and he defined them as these angels that were so unique and so special that it was like they were on fire. John the Revelator later saw essentially the same vision. So we're going to look at what John the Revelator saw in the book of Revelations chapter 5, and then we'll look at what Isaiah saw. But before we do that, I want to think about for a minute some of the times that men have been allowed to see into the throne of God, because this is critical in order to understand what Isaiah and John both are seeing when they see these seraphim. And I've put on the board here the times that I'm aware of where man has been allowed to see into or see a representation of the throne of God. First of all, Exodus 24, verse 10, 
when Moses went up into the mountain. If you remember, he went up into the mountain. We've read the verses already where Psalms describes that as the throne of God, the very throne of God up in the mountain in this cloud that was on fire. Moses went up there, was allowed to see the hinder parts of the glory of God. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. So Moses was allowed to see along with Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and the 70 elders. They saw this glory of God on top of the mountain. In 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter, the prophet Micaiah described a vision where he saw the throne of God and hosts gathered around. And we talked about that Friday night. Job chapter 38 through 42, God appeared to Job and his friends in the form of a whirlwind. And at the end of it, it was very clear that Job was overwhelmed at having seen God uh, represent himself in this way. And so it was like seeing God on his throne or God in his majesty. Ezekiel, the first chapter through uh, verse 4 through 28, and in fact, on into the book of Ezekiel, describes a throne of God being let down by angels and Ezekiel being allowed to see this throne of God. And it's a magnificent scene. Daniel was allowed to see as the Ancient of Days was enthroned. Uh, Habakkuk, a prophet, was allowed to see God on his throne as it was in Mount Sinai. So Habakkuk was allowed to see prophetically what Moses saw back in Exodus 3. And it's very instructive to read what Habakkuk says about that to understand what went on back there in Mount Sinai. Acts the 7th chapter, Stephen, as he looked into heavens, saw God and Jesus on his right hand standing there. And so Stephen was allowed to see into the throne of God. The Apostle Paul talked about one that was caught up into the third heaven and heard inexpressible words. Most believe that Paul was talking about himself, describing one caught up into heaven and seeing God on his throne. Revelation is the fourth chapter, the other passage we will look at. John seeing the throne of God and the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and seeing these four angels and the 24 elders around and all the, the trappings of this throne of God. And then Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Isaiah was allowed to see this throne of God. Pretty unique, pretty special when somebody's allowed to see, to peek into the very throne of God. And it's instructive. Two of these occasions, these writers describe seeing four specific angels. I want to first talk about Isaiah and who he was, his time and life and place, so that it'll help give us a frame of reference of what's going on. Isaiah was a prophet. During Isaiah's day, there was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. They were divided. The northern kingdom of Israel was under attack from a king from the, the country of Assyria by the name of Pilgeth Pel, uh, Pelneser. They were under attack, and Isaiah was preaching to those people through his writings and through possibly prophets that might have been sent up there, telling them to repent because they were going to be destroyed. During his day, Tilgath Pilneser and other kings came, invaded, and in fact conquered those ten northern tribes. In the days of Jesus, Jesus referred to them as Samaritans. Sometimes people call them the lost tribes of Israel. Those ten northern tribes, that country was decimated by the Assyrians and never existed again. And Isaiah, and in his day, his job was to preach to those people, maybe to get some of them to repent. Some of them did repent, and they traveled down and lived in the, north, in the southern tribe of Judah. Meanwhile, Isaiah had another task at hand. That same army that invaded the northern tribe, the northern sets of tribes, was also a few years later going to invade the southern tribes. And so Isaiah needed to tell Judah to repent, to turn back to God. And he did. He began to preach to the kings of his day, namely Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did repent. And they turned away the enemies of God. And Judah was allowed to live some time longer and exist Sometime longer. 
In doing this, Isaiah not only preached to those people the message of repentance so that they could survive, but he also told them, you need to repent because someday a Messiah is going to come through your lineage. And this country needs to be here. If Isaiah doesn't preach to those people, if those people don't hear and heed the teaching of Isaiah, the Jerusalem won't be there for Christ to walk its streets. The temple won't be there for Christ to cast out the money changers. Those things won't be there, you see. So it's critical that Isaiah is successful in his mission. And so what we're going to look at is how did Isaiah start off? What started him in his job, so to speak? What caused him to begin to be a preacher of this message? The sixth chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And indeed, Isaiah was sent. And he began to preach. And he had a big impact, especially on the southern tribe of Judah, in his preaching. Isaiah was the one that would later write that who, about the, the suffering Savior. Who would believe his report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Isaiah would pen those words. Isaiah would write so many other words about the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. A very important prophet. Oh, the Lord did send Isaiah. I want to also read a parallel version. John saw essentially the same thing. There's other details described here, but it's essentially the same scene. So I want to read it so that we can create, if you will, again, a sort of a composite view of what these men are seeing. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. 
And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worships him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Pretty amazing scene. This scene that repeats itself over and over. Now here's an artist's rendition, and there's a lot of inaccuracies in this, but it's the closest I could find. This is something like the throne that Isaiah and John saw. It's high and lifted up. John adds the detail that it's in the temple. And this version here doesn't show it as in the temple. But John sees it as if it were in the temple. The vision that John and, the, and, John and Isaiah both see, the, uh, the four creatures are actually flying. They're, it describes them as standing, but I, I read that to mean that they are in a standing or prone position of standing, but they're actually flying. So they're actually elevated. As they're elevated, there's this glorious vision in the middle of God. It's, it's just bright and brilliant, and the thunderings and lightnings coming from it. And around it, the 24 elders. And this song that's going on of holy, holy, holy. And like I said, I wanted to put something there to kind of give you this idea of what these men are seeing. Now, as we think about Isaiah specifically, I want to think about Isaiah now. Here, Isaiah, and all of a sudden, this vision opens up, and it's the temple. And in this temple, he sees this scene of God on his throne. All the events going on. And it says that the train of the robe fills the temple. You know, the train of the robe of a king is an indication of the glory of that king. You know, when uh, the Queen of England comes into Parliament and speaks to them, you'll notice she's got this big, long train behind her, and people kind of carry it, and they make over it and all. And when she sits down, it, there, you know, well, this king's throne, this king's train of his robe is so great that it fills the temple. Now, the temple's a big structure. And here sits God enthroned as if he were in the temple, and the train of his robe comes off and around and around and down and around, and it circles back and forth to the point that it fills the whole temple. You couldn't walk with a train like that. This is an awesome king to have a train of his robe like that. What Isaiah is seeing, he's seeing that there's no other king greater than this king. That's what he sees in this vision. The train of his robe fills the temple. What Isaiah sees is the glory of God, this brilliance of God. Now I want to think about the glory of God for a little bit. Take some time and talk about the glory of God. Glory of God. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? Glory of God. You know, uh, you begin to study that. The phrase glory or glory of God is used a lot in the scriptures. I think a lot of people in Christianity today use that phrase almost as a byword. Glory. You hear them say it all the time. Glory this and glory that. The glory of God is something pretty special. It's not something to be thrown around at like a byword. The glory of God is a pretty unique and special thing. I want to take a minute to help us understand what it was Isaiah was seeing when he saw God in his glory, enthroned in his glory. What was it, Isaiah, that you're seeing? Let's look at some verses that help us understand the glory of God. Exodus 16, verse 10. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness of God, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now you remember, as the children of Israel are coming through the wilderness... As they saw the mountain in the distance, they saw the glory of God 
on the mountain. It was brilliant. It was so brilliant that when they drew near, they were afraid of it. It was lightnings and thunderings and flashings and bright light. And the voice that came from it was terrifying. It was a brilliant light, this glory of God. As we go on, we see in Exodus, the 24th chapter now, that they approached this mountain of God. Now the glory of God rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Boy, that's scary. Here they are around the mountain and up in the mountain, this cloud of fire. It looks like it's on fire up there with lightnings and thunderings and voices coming. And it's brilliant. And it's the glory of God that's in this cloud that's up there. And now Moses, and a voice comes up and Moses climbs the mountain up into this cloud. Well, that would take some courage. You know, maybe he would be burned up or something. No. So Moses climbs up in the mountain. Maybe if we can learn what happened to Moses up there, we can learn a little bit about what the glory of God is. Moses went up there, and here's what happened in chapter 33. <laughs> Moses was up there, and he's things going on and all. And finally in chapter 33, this is Moses speaking. He said, please show me your glory. So Moses had been up in this cloud all these days, and he still hadn't actually seen the glory of God. He was exposed to it. He was in the presence of God's glory, but he hadn't laid his eyes on the glory of God. First of all, we learn that the nature of the glory of God is such that it affects everything around it. So this cloud of beings or angels, this cloud that's around this mountain is so brilliant in its appearance. That's not the very glory of God itself. That's, if you will, the byproduct of the glory of God. Moses has been up there for almost 40 days. He still hasn't actually laid eyes on the glory of God. So he asked God, he said, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make, this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my goodness. So I said, well, I guess Moses didn't get what he asked for. Moses wanted to see his glory. God said, I'll tell you what, I'll show you my goodness. But I can't show you my face because you can't see my face and live. So what's, what's going on here? God says, I'll show you my goodness, but you can't see my face. Well, what is the glory of God? What is it Moses is not allowed to see? Let's watch the rest of the verse. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Interesting. God described his goodness one and the same as his glory. Moses said, show me your glory. God said, I'll tell you what, I'll show you my goodness. Then later when God was describing his goodness, he described it as his glory. What is the glory of God? It is the goodness of God. Same thing. Okay. Well, here's what happened. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. God somehow covers him with his hand, so to speak. God passes by the essence of God's glory, passes by. And as he passes by, he removes his hand. And Moses is able to see the backside of God as he passes away. The, the backside of the goodness 
or the glory of God. This so affected Moses that when he came off the mountain, the people couldn't look at him. The people asked him to put a veil over his face because the glow, the radiation of it was more than they could take. They couldn't stand it. That was the nature of being exposed just to the back parts of the glory of God, the goodness of God. Somebody said, let me see what slide up. Yeah. Somebody said, what does that mean, goodness or glory of God? And why would it have that impact? I want to take a minute to, for us to understand that. The presence of God, the presence of the goodness of glory or the glory of God. You know, if we were in heaven, we would be personally exposed to God's glory, to his goodness. It's the way Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. They walked with God in the cool of the day. When Christ was on earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ was a representation of God. If you see Christ, you see a representation of the Father. God represented his presence through Christ. God represented his presence through other means through the years also. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So the universe itself demonstrates at least some of the glory of God. The passage we read this morning says that someday... Those that are wicked will be divided or separated from the presence of the glory of God. In these concepts, we have the scriptures lay out for us at least four, if you will let me use this word, levels or exposures to the glory of God. Four exposures. One is the personal presence of God where you are face to face with God. God told Moses, no man can see me face to face and live. You can't do it. Let me move back up here. You can't be in that level, not, not unprotected. You cannot be like that. So that's the personal presence of the goodness of God. The representative presence of God, I believe, comes through uh, having Christ in us. Christians have that. God is represented in our life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, through Christ. There's been other ways that that happens. You've got the presence of the work. So that's for Christians and those who belong to God. You've got the presence of the works of God. That's available to anybody on earth. Anybody in the universe can look around and see evidences of the glory of God in the universe around us. And then you've got those that are cast into everlasting destruction who are completely separated from the goodness of God. So when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about the presence of the goodness of God. Now I want to mostly focus on this third level, and that is the presence of his works, because that's the one that we can most get our minds around. This world, this universe, is filled with good things. It's filled with good things because God created it. It's a, an evidence of God's handiwork. You know, uh, we were joking last night about Brother Yancey's barbecue out here, and he was saying something about his pipe fitters didn't weld that, or they would be uh, embarrassed if they had done it or if he was driving around with it. Because what a man does something, it's a witness of his ability and a witness of what he does. Of course it is. The universe is a great painting of God. God has, it's a work of art that God has demonstrated. Of course it represents his glory. It demonstrates the glory of God. So if we could take somehow in our mind and understand all the goodness that's in this universe, we would at least have a portion of what it means to be God. So let's just take that for a moment. The good things in my life, my family, that little baby girl and that little baby boy, that's pretty good. My mom, my dad, all those family relationships, God created that. He created the institution of the family. 
time together on the weekend, playing cards, good warm feelings that you have, that's good. That's very good. A really ripe, dark grape. The kind that don't have the seeds in it so you can just eat it. You don't have to worry about the seeds. I, my wife packs those in my lunch every day. I love those really dark, dark, almost black grapes. I just eat them like candy. They're really good. God created those. It's a little bitty piece of God's goodness. Pecan pie, while we're on the subject of food. God created pecans. He created whatever Cairo syrup is made out of. I don't know what it's made out of. He created it. Pecan pie is an evidence of the goodness of God. Brother Mike McCorkle and I knew a fellow growing up that went to churches there in Marlowe that had a condition that any time he ate a food that he really, really liked, he would break out in hives. He just, it was so overwhelming to him to enjoy this particular food, and I forgot what it was, some kind of food that he would eat that. It would just cause him to break out in hives because he liked it so much. Think about the best thing that has ever happened to you in terms of your surroundings in your life. That the, your most favorite moment, the time when it seemed like everything was right. Now think of the second one and the second one. Try in your mind to take every good thing in your life, every good thing that's ever happened, and compress them all into one moment of experience. You think you'd break out into hives? Now, take every good thing of all of our lives in this room and compress them into one moment. You think you could stand that much goodness in one moment? What do you think that would feel like to have the joy in your heart for one moment that everybody in here has ever had in their heart? How about everybody in the universe? How about every gentle raindrop that falls on a thirsty desert? How about every good thing that has ever happened, put all those together, compress them into one experience, one moment, and what you have is just a piece of the goodness of God. Just the evidence that he put in his creation. That's where we live. That's what we can experience. We can't stand to be in the perfect presence of God. We can't stand it. That's what Isaiah was seeing. Isaiah was looking at that which man cannot look at. Every bit of goodness of all time and all creation compressed into one being, the glory of God, the goodness of God. That's what Isaiah is looking at, the glory of God, okay? Now I want you to kind of keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that. That's what Isaiah sees when he sees this king wearing this throne and trained there on the temple, on the throne, this is what he sees, the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, the presence of God has four angels around them. And these angels are hovering or flying immediately above the throne of God. They're the closest angels you'll ever see to God. They're right there, very close to God. And they're hovering around. And these angels are flying. They have six wings and they're flying. They're burning angels. They're, it looks like they're on fire. Maybe they're on fire because they're so close to God. Whatever the case is, the glory of God has so affected them that it's as if they're on fire. They are the seraph angel. 
They're burning because they're so close to God. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a song they're singing. How interesting. They're singing a song that you might call a uh, fugue maybe or a, a, what do you call like row, row, row your boat when one starts and then the next starts. One of those kind of songs. The way this described here is one will begin singing, holy, holy, holy. And just as he starts, the next one answers, holy, holy, holy. And then as he starts the next one, ho- meanwhile, this one's saying the whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And it just goes back and forth. They're singing to one another as they're witnessing the goodness of God on his throne. Holy, holy, holy. Now, Revelations gives us more details to this scene. This repeats itself. As it begins, these angels begin to sing this. These elders have but one thing they can do. They take the crowns off their head and they throw them down. And they bow to the knee. And they stay there while this song, while this song is sung. And then after a moment, you it doesn't exactly word it this way, but this process repeats itself. So at some moment, the song is over. The elders take their seats again, put their thrones back on. And it's almost like something's not right. Somebody's got to say something. Somebody has to say something about the glory of God. Holy, 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 holy. And it starts again and this whole process goes on night and day. As they do this, the posts of the doors were shaken. Now these are big columns that hold the temple up. And Isaiah is so overwhelmed by the voice of these angels that the voice of these angels is shaking these columns. These angels are powerful in their praise and it's shaking the columns of the temple and the posts are shaking and they're singing this possibly in the language of angels. Isaiah is being led, able to understand it. We talked about this Friday night. The apostle Paul described this, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful, and I would substitute the word possible, not possible for man to utter. Here is this song being sung, this great song repeated back and forth about the glory of God. And Isaiah is hearing inexpressible words, things he can't say. It's so wonderful, so beyond his ability, he can't join in the song. It's not possible for a man to utter inexpressible words. This is what Isaiah is seeing and hearing about the goodness of God. It says in Revelations 4, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of his eyes, round within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It never stops. This scene never stops. God is on his throne. God is good. His glory is deserving of it. When the song stops, they start again. It's always repeating. Holy, 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 holy. And after all, what else would the four seraphim do if they were hovering or flying above the throne? What, what else could there be more important to do than to announce the holiness of the God that they worship, the holiness of the Almighty God? Isaiah. Now we've seen and described the scene that Isaiah and John saw. Let's turn our attention to what Isaiah felt. Isaiah replied, 
woe is me. You ever been somewhere and you feel like you just didn't belong there? Maybe it's a little bit out of your culture. That happens to me a lot. <laughs> I tell you, I kind of grew up in the dirt, so it's not too hard for me to get above my raisin real fast. And uh, there's been a time or two where I work at Tinker that a four-star general will come through. It happened here a while back. Four-star general comes through. We had the most silly things the Air Force celebrates. We had put some terrazzo flooring down in a in an aisleway, and they wanted to take pictures with. And there was four or five generals there. You know, forget about all the important projects we do. Put some floor covering down, Brother Yancey, and they wanted to come take pictures. So here comes all these generals with stars. There's people and cameras. It's the most mess. It's just amazing that they all come out there. And, and so, and I was the project manager for this project. And so, well, come on, Mike, get in the picture. And I'm kind of like, I'm not really sure I belong in this crowd. These people are all like going to be president someday. <laughs> and there's, you know, a pretty high ranking official. Didn't really feel like I was at home there. Imagine that about a bazillion times over. And that's what Isaiah says. Woe is me. I'm seeing something I shouldn't see. Let me tell you about Isaiah. Isaiah knew what Moses wrote. He knew that Moses had seen the hinder parts of God. And he knew Moses had written the words, no man can see my face and live. And here stands Isaiah looking at God in the face in this vision. And Isaiah looks at it and says, "Uh uh-oh. I'm seeing something I shouldn't be seeing. It's too wonderful for me. It's inexpressible. I stand there with his mouth open. Woe is me. You cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. There's been other times that people had this same expression when they saw what they thought was God. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon had the same expression, just seeing the angel of the Lord. Oh no, I've seen the angel of the Lord. Judges Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Now Manoah actually saw an angel. We studied this Friday night. He just saw an angel. But so overwhelming was the presence of this angel when he saw it go into the smoke and go up that Manoah said to his wife, well, that's it. We're dead. They've seen something beyond ability to understand. Oh, we're done. We're going to die. Surely we're going to die. We've seen this. Job, after God spoke to him from the whirlwind and after Job heard the voice of God and the words of God, Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what Job said? When he saw God in the whirlwind and heard his voice, Job looked inwardly and he said, I hate who I am. I abhor, abhor myself. I cannot stand. Stand the thought of me. That's why a man cannot be in the presence of God unprotected. Our sin is exposed. I hate who I am. That's what Job said. Job saw God, heard God, and said, I I hate myself. I can't stand myself. Habakkuk, when he saw the vision of the mountain repeated, 
in, vision, in a vision. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I, met, that I might rest in the day of trouble. Habakkuk said, my bones just rotted on the inside. I want to take a moment to talk about something you hear a lot about these days, and that is self-esteem. It's all a lie. You've got one thing to hang your hat on, that's Christ. Without that, hate yourself. you got nothing. All you got to do is stand before the presence of God to figure that out, and someday you will. Someday people will cry for the mountains to fall on them because it will be abundantly clear. People will begin to abhor what they are. Unless they have the blood of Christ. Then there will be some value. Isaiah then said another part of his response. He said, I'm undone, which I found a, kind of a curious way to translate that. Damah is the word. It means can't speak. I'm, I'm, I'm dumb or silent. I can't talk. The essence of it is this. There's a song going on about the greatness of God. These angels are singing holy, 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 but it's something inexpressible and I can't join the song. I can't speak. Something needs to be said here and Isaiah says, woe is me because I can't sing with them. I can't join in the song. I am undone. Then he further concludes, I'm unclean and dwell among unclean people. Tame means I'm filthy. Isaiah had essentially the same response that Job and Habakkuk did. Isaiah saw it, he heard the song, and basically two things. He says, I should be able to praise. It's only right that this God be praised, and I can't. I can't even open my mouth. I'm undone. And then he says, and also, ugh. I'm filthy. That's what the glory of God does to the unprotected human. See? And he, and he concludes, because I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God knows what Isaiah is going through. He knows. So... This seraphim, one of the seraphim, stopped the singing, stopped singing, went and flew and took with some tongs a coal from the altar. Now remember it's in the temple, so there would be the fire on the altar burning all the time. Took a coal from the altar, flew down, and touched the lips of Isaiah. Can you imagine here comes this coal of fire? Trust would say, let God touch me with this coal of fire. But fear would say, I'm not sure about that. You know. But the angel touched his t- lips, his tongue, with the coal of fire. And his iniquity is taken away. You know what Isaiah said? After this happened, God announced from heaven, who's going to go? Who's going to go tell Israel that a child will be born? That his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Who's going to tell Israel there is hope to repent and worship as Moses instructed? Who's going to tell Israel that Sennacherib and Hilgeth Pilneser and these other kings will not be successful? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to preach to the people and let them know that there is hope? 
You know what? Isaiah's not undone anymore. He's not dumb anymore. Isaiah said, I can sing the song now. I'll sing it. Send me. I'll tell them. You and I face the exact same situation. The coal that touches our life is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You and I can be protected just like Isaiah was protected. Jesus Christ can come into our lives. And Jesus Christ, just like the coal touched his lips, Jesus Christ can touch our lips. And so as Peter said, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. We have the very word of God that can purify our speech and purify our soul and cause us no longer to stand and look at ourselves and say, but we can know that we're cleansed by the blood of Christ and our iniquity can be taken away. And instead of looking and seeing it, we can look and see what second Corinthians five twenty one says when he says for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So think of what happens. You and I and God look at ourselves and we see the righteousness of Christ. And you know why? Because once upon a time, God looked down on Calvary and he saw somebody there and he said, Ooh, that's sin. Ooh, that's iniquity. I'm going to punish it. That's why. So we can wear the righteousness of Christ. And just like Isaiah, upon wearing the righteousness of Christ symbolically in the coal of this altar, then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I want you to watch what the apostle says about this. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You and I have been given cleansing. We can stand before God. We don't have to be like Isaiah or Habakkuk of Job. We don't have to stand and say, woe is me, I'm undone. No, we can, as we studied yesterday or last night, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. You'd think we could talk about it. Here am I, send me. Your family, your friends, your neighbor, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your husband, your wife, they're waiting. Someday, they will face God. Don't let them face God like Isaiah and the others did unprotected. These seraphim flying around this throne are there at this perfect spot to see and witness the goodness of God. For this reason, seraphim are thought by a lot of people to be the highest ranking angel. I think it's kind of obvious why also a lot of people believe that Satan was a seraphim before he fell because of the analogy of the fire, the analogy of the serpent, and a lot of other reasons. I'm we have time to get into that, but seraphim, these are the angels that we're talking about. The highest angel of all has but one duty, and that is to praise, honor, and extol the creator of this universe. Here am I, send me. Hope you've enjoyed the study that we've gone through this week or this weekend. It's been a pleasure for me. Uh, I know that uh, you probably have more questions now than we started, and that's the nature of the study. I always do. The more I study anything, it seems like the more questions I have, but Hopefully we've accomplished our mission, and that is through a study of the angels to glorify God and Christ and draw ourselves closer to God and his throne. If you need the help of the church in any way, if you'd like to request the prayers of the church, any way that we can help you obey the Lord in baptism, if you will, come forward, have a seat on the front, while we sing the invitation song.